Welcome to Penn Daily. I'm one of your hosts, Isabella Simonetti, and the former president of The Daily Pennsylvanian. I'm your other host, Alec Druggan, a senior in the college and the former podcast producer for The Daily Pennsylvanian. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Phyllis Rackin, who we are featuring in our special International Women's Month episode. Dr. Rackin started at Penn in 1962 after receiving a PhD in English from the University of Illinois. Initially an instructor, she became an assistant professor in 1964, an associate professor in 1975, and a full-time professor in 1990. In 1981, she became the director for the General Honors Program. Outside of her career here at Penn, she has been a longtime contributor to the Shakespeare Association of America, where she was the president of the association in 1993. Dr. Rackham has published many pieces on Shakespeare and the Renaissance, and continues to teach her famous introduction to Shakespeare course here at Penn, which both Isabella and I took in the last fall. So, Dr. Rackett, can you start by telling us about how you ended up at Penn? Uh, yeah. Um, when uh, I was in graduate school, my husband and I were both in graduate school together, and we had a young child. So we wanted to find two jobs in the same city because we wanted to all live together and share the child care. Um, so uh, at the that was before people had computers, so we hand-typed, well, I think I typed 90-some letters of inquiry to various departments asking, you know, telling how wonderful I was and asking if they had a job. And then uh, some of them gave us interviews, and two of the places that um, we ended up with job offers were Penn and Temple, and they were both in Philadelphia. And that seemed like the best combination uh, uh, of jobs for us to take. So that's how I ended up at Penn. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it's currently International Women's Month. We're delighted to bring you on as someone that has written extensively about Shakespeare and the Renaissance through a lens of gender, sexuality, and misogyny sometimes. In 2016, the DP published an article called 1962 to 2016, One Woman's Story of Navigating Male-Dominated Academia which outlined some of the discrimination and sexism that you faced throughout your career and even filed a successful lawsuit against the university. What has your experience been like as a woman in academia, particularly in your early years at Penn? Well, um, I, I, I knew uh, that there was prejudice against uh, women in academia as there was throughout the culture. I mean, academia wasn't special. Um, I was uh, in graduate school. I was uh, ranked very high, they, they ranked the graduate students, and I was ranked very high a, among the hundreds of graduate students in English they had at Illinois at the time. Um, in fact, I had uh, one of four very special fellowships and, you know, perfect grade point average and all that stuff. And um, so then there was this guy who was a real jerk who was the placement officer, and when I went in to have my appointment with him, when I started my job search, he pointed me to a place I had never heard of, a little college in, I don't know, some strange place uh, that I had barely heard of. And I said, I, I know you're getting better job openings than that. Why are you showing me this? And he said, well, as a married woman with a child, you'll be lucky if you can get part time at a state teacher's college. So I kind of knew that, at least in the eyes of someone like him, I wasn't a very desirable job candidate. Um, but I, d I did get good offers. 
and uh, and Penn was one of the best offers I got. And when I got here, I was treated very well at first, um, and you know thought I had kind of landed on my feet. There were some uh, strange things. Uh, for instance, uh, um, men uh, could advise undergraduate women students, but women could not advise undergraduate men students. And uh, when I first taught the big Shakespeare lecture, in those days, uh, the grade sheets came in, you got separate grade sheets from each of the college and the college for women was separate. And we had a uh, college for women, the college, which was only for men at the time, the engineering school and Wharton. And when I, oh, and I, I didn't keep my grade books separate that way, separately that way. I just put all the students in alphabetical order. And at the end of the semester, when I got the grade sheets and I filled them out, I noticed that almost all the A's were going to people in the college for women. And most of the B's were going to young men in the college. Most of the C's were going to Wharton students. And I thought, Am I being prejudiced? Am I favoring the women? You know, unconsciously giving the women better grades than they deserve. And I asked someone, they said, oh, no, no, that's not uh, your problem. It's much harder to get into the college for women. They accept far fewer students. So if you were a, an undergraduate applying to Penn at that time, if you had certain credentials, if you were a man, they would probably get you in and those same credentials, if you were a woman, would get you rejected. Now, the official reason was that women were required to live in the dorms and men could live off campus and there just wasn't enough housing for the women. But that was, I think, kind of an excuse to keep women. So that's one instance of discrimination that I encountered right away when I first started teaching. Um, another thing is, uh, I don't know, I guess I noticed it. There. Yeah, sure I did. Uh, I wasn't terribly aware of these things because, you know, I hadn't suffered from it yet. And I think it's human nature that uh, things that you suffer are tragedies and things that other people suffer are easy to explain away or overlook. And uh, I noticed there were there were no senior women in the English department at all. And in fact, the only junior women were me and then two other women that they hired after they hired me, but later that same year. And they put all three of us in the same office uh, because although um, people for, uh, at the higher ranks had private offices, new people, had to share an office, but everybody else, all the men only had to share an office with one other person. But we had three of us crammed into one little office because again, women and men were not allowed to share offices. They had to have separate offices. So there, there were some little things that I noticed, but generally I was treated very well and I was very happy. Um, a couple of years after I arrived, uh, there was a big shakeup in the department. Someone had decided that the department needed to be cleaned up and it had a lot of dead wood. So they brought in a new chairman from the outside and uh, he had been at Tulane. And uh, when the news got out, you know, in the academic grapevine that he was coming to Penn, uh, I got a telephone call 
from an old friend who was teaching in Ohio at the time, an old graduate school friend. He said, ha, 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 I hear X is coming to Penn to be your chair. And I said, well, what do you know about him? And I said, what? he said, well, he's an SOB, but he's especially hard on women. When he was at Tulane, the first thing he did when he got there was to clean out all the women in the department. So that wasn't very good news. And then as soon as he got there, uh, by that time, several other women had been hired. There were about five women, I think, at the lowest rank. And when you came in, you were supposed to get a three-year probationary period. And he called all the women into his office, except for me. And he told all the other women that their appointments were now terminal. Their probationary period was no longer a probationary period. No matter what they did, they would not be brought up for promotion to the next level. He didn't do that to me because he couldn't get away with it because I was sort of the fair-haired girl. But he waited his time until it came time for me to come up for tenure and promotion. And then uh, the department voted for me to get the tenure and promotion, but he wrote, forwarded the recommendation as the procedure was to the college personnel committee along with a personal letter opposing it. And uh, that the personnel committee turned me down. So I, I was going to be let go. Um, but uh, one of my colleagues, and again, a male colleague, I don't mean that all the men I met at Penn were horrible and misogynist, you know, just enough of them. But, but this guy was not. And uh, he um, was not happy that this had happened to me. I didn't know any of this at the time. But he told a student named Sandy Deckert, um, what, who had been his student and mine, what had happened. And Sandy was very upset. And Sandy was an activist. And she organized a student protest. So in response to the student protest, the whole thing was brought up again. And um, he, the chairman pulled various devious mechanisms to get me turned down again. And at that point, I was pretty upset. So I did get a lawyer and sue Penn. Wow. How have those experiences framed how you interact with female students? Um, and what about with your female colleagues? Well, I think it's very important uh, for women to pay it forward. A lot of women, when I had my problems, came to my assistance. And I would not have been able to accomplish anything without it. Uh, help from women at Penn, not just faculty women. Uh, there, at that time, there was a lot of anger at the way women were treated, and there was an organization called WEOP, Women for Equal Opportunity, at the University of Pennsylvania. And our president was a woman named Carol Tracy. She now is at the uh, Women's Law Center, but she she was only a secretary at that point, but she had incredible leadership skills, and she was. She was the president of the organization and she really made it very successful. And I had a lot of support from her and from the organization. Uh, and I think it's important um, for, I, I don't think, uh, in a, if you're a member of an oppressed group, I don't think you can do very much on your own. You need to unite with others. You know, we had a saying, sisterhood is powerful. And, you know, I think it's true. What work do you think Penn still has to do in terms of gender equality among both students or faculty? 
I don't know about, well, I've been retired for a number of years, and the only part of Penn that I still have contact with much is the English department. I think the English department is terrific now. I don't really see problems. I mean, there are plenty of women at the top. Uh, you know, there women have served as chair, uh, women have served as graduate chair, women have endowed professorships. Uh, it, it looks, it, I might be seeing it through rose-colored glasses, but it looks pretty good to me right now. And we've had two women presidents of the university. We've had women deans of the college. You, you know, none of that. I, I would think you might ha have a better handle on that than I do. Mm. And um, what do you like most about teaching, sort of transitioning into that? And how do you think that um, that was affected last semester by the current pandemic? I love teaching. Uh, it keeps me in touch with young people and finding out what they think and who they are. And uh, you can learn an awful lot about people by finding out how they respond to Shakespeare's characters and Shakespeare's plays. You, you can tell an awful lot about uh, people, where they're coming from, what they're thinking by how they respond to the plots of the plays and the characters. And I love being in touch with young people and getting their responses and hearing where they're coming from. So it's it's very exciting for me. And it's especially exciting during the last five years or so, because I think your generation is one of the most impressive and promising of any I've ever taught, because you guys really do seem to care about more than just accumulating credentials and getting good jobs. For a while, it seemed like that's all. Pe well, I've had periods when it seemed like the majority of students only cared about the next beer party. I've had times when it seemed like the majority of students only cared about where they were going to go to graduate school or what great big corporate firm was going to hire them. But you guys really do seem to care about the world and making it a better place and what's the right thing to do. And it makes me love you. Thank you. Um, on behalf of the generation of the last five years, um, what do you think is the most common like misconception about Shakespeare, especially for students coming into your class? Oh gosh, I don't know. Uh, one misconception, a lot of uh, fair, not a majority, but a fair number of people buy into uh, the Shakespeare was so illiterate he could not possibly have written the plays myth. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, the idea that it's, oh yes that he is trying to give you a philosophy of life. And, you know, it's sort of like the solitary poet philosopher pouring out his heart and, give, and second only to the Bible and giving you great wisdom. Fair enough. Um, and what's your favorite Shakespeare play to teach and why? Oh, favorite to teach? God, hard to know. That's a hard question. Uh, I love to teach Henry the Fourth, Part One, because um, it's about. I don't think you had it in your class, did you? Okay, it's it, the story it tells is of a young prince growing into maturity, and he has three different influences on him, all pulling him in different directions. One is Falstaff, who's all about, you know, good times and eating and drinking and d doing illegal things. And, playing tricks. 
One is Hotspur was all about ambition and making a name for himself. And one is daddy, his father, about becoming a responsible adult. And um, Hal has to really choose among these. He's pulled in all different ways. And he has to incorporate the good qualities of all three of these influences and try to not incorporate the bad ones. And I think that the struggle that Hal is going through is very much like what's confronting young people of the age who take the class and seeing their responses to the choices. You know, it's it's very interesting. Some years, um, the students are uh, all in favor of Falstaff's way of doing things and they think Hotspur's a fool. Some years, they think that Falstaff is a dangerous reprobate and how should be more responsible. So it, it's it, it's interesting to teach it and to hear people's responses to it. Um, speaking about class, what's been your most memorable or best experience teaching at Penn? You mean a single class or a single thing or? Either a single class, a single thing, a whole semester. Uh, gosh, I couldn't say. I, I mean, there's so many good classes. I, I don't think I could. I mean, not every class is good, but there have been so many good ones that it's, it's really hard to single out one class. I guess one thing, oh, okay, here's something I really, is very memorable and that I really, really made me feel good. This was years and years ago and I agreed to teach a CGS course, which included people from the community. And it also included some Penn students who wanted to take, get credit for the course and take an easier version of it, not take the regular course. And in that class, I had three students who were particularly extreme, extremely different. I had one kind of smug fraternity boy. I had one black single mother in her 30s trying to accumulate credits toward a degree. And I had one sort of South Philadelphia, lower middle class guy, you know, that you would expect to have predictable prejudices. And when I saw those people going out together on their break and making friends with each other, that was a really good experience. Also, when I taught King Lear and I was teaching about homelessness in King Lear, to see the ones who were not home, who had never confronted homelessness, be dealing with someone who had right in the class and bringing that together. That that was very memorable and very encouraging to me because I they did squabble a bit, but they got together too. And I thought it was, you know, good for them and good for me to see that. Right. Um, and so Alec and I both loved your class on Shakespeare in the fall. Um, which is currently labeled English 326 Intro to Shakespeare. Um, for those listening who may be interested in taking the course, can you give us sort of a, an introduction um, and like a pitch for the class? I'd rather not give a pitch because I like to try and keep the class as small as possible. Um, the uh, the I, Because I like to keep it small, there, there are always more people who want to take it than I can let in and I have to, 
one year I allowed it to go up to 18 and the class was terrible. Um, you've got, I can't let it get over 12. I'd rather have 10 because as you know, it's a very participatory class and it's important that everybody get to talk and fully get fully engaged, not only with me and with the text, but with each other. And if it gets too big, that's not gonna happen. There are gonna be people who are left out. Nobody's gonna really get, if, if I let anybody get as much time as they want, that's taking away from somebody else. Um, so I will say, don't take the class unless you've got a tremendous amount of time to put into it. You've gotta to go to the study groups outside of class. The class is the least of it. The study groups are the, oh, study groups. I had, I, uh, one of my study groups years ago resulted in a marriage. Two people met each other in the study group and they got together and they later married. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, I won't make, I don't want to make a pitch because it's, it's a very difficult class. Uh, you don't have to know anything about Shakespeare, but you do have to be willing to put in a lot of work. All right, so we're going to shift away from the class then so that we don't drag too many more people into it next fall. Um, so outside of your professional career and your almost immeasurable amount of either published works or works that have been published that you've contributed to, what are some things you're interested in, passionate about? Do you have any hobbies? Uh, other than, you know what? I don't, and, and that's weird. Uh, well, I, I, I do a little gardening, but I'm not very good at it. Oh, I, my favorite thing in the world to do better than even teaching is swimming in the ocean. And um, we have a cottage on the beach in Prince Edward Island. I haven't been there for two years, but uh, the, the cottage, it's, it's like a shack, but it's right on a sand dune. And I love getting in that water and just immersing myself. I also like going out on boats, but I like you know, we have a little rowboat, which I enjoy, um, but I like swimming better than anything. Uh, and the other thing I'm very passionate about is animals. Um, I've had, I don't have, my dog uh, died this winter. I don't have an animal now, but I've had dogs and cats most of my life. And I'm very, very devoted to animals. When I see a dog on the street, my heart yearns for it. When you know, I see somebody who has, still has a dog, they're walking it. Um, and dogs seem to, dogs are amazing. They seem to sense that they can tell that I love them because strange dogs always want to come up to me. So I guess so I'm a dog cute. person. Oh, me too. Um, I like cats, but I like all animals. Yeah. I like cats too. The, I haven't uh. had a cat for, oh, about eight or 10 years. Cause my last cat lived to a very old age and he became senile when he was old. And the form his senility took was he pooped all over the house in the corners of rooms. And every time he'd poop in a place, I'd put another litter box there. And I had six litter boxes going at one time, but he was still pooping on the rug. So I, Aww. when he died, I decided I had cleaned up enough cat litter for a life, uh, cat poop for a lifetime. I, I like other people's cats, but yeah um so before we end this episode um would you be willing to recite one of your favorite lines or passages from any shakespeare play 
Oh dear, I'll, I'll think of something. What? Uh, as soon as we're through, let me let me think. What what do I love best? You know, I'm sure I'll think of. I mean, I'm thinking of passages, but I don't know. If, I I love you know Barbus's description of Cleopatra, the one that begins the barge. She sat in like a burnished throne, burnt on the water. The poop was beaten purple. The sails, and so perfumed that the winds were love sick with them. The poop was beaten gold. It, I, it's nice. There, there are better ones. Uh, no, I, I, I can't think offhand. I'm sure as yeah. soon as we're through, I'm going to think of 20 that I would have loved. Oh, I know something I adore that I can recite. I love his sonnet. My mistress eyes were nothing like the sun. Okay. You want that? Yes, yeah. please. My mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. And in, uh, I, I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. Oh, dear. Uh, and yet? No, no. I, there's one where he says, in, in some perf perfumes there is more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. But there's something before that that rhymes with delight. Anyway, at the and at the end, he says, and yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she lied with false compare. Uh, I love that because uh, he, he's denying all these fake attributes that the conventional sonneteers gave to their ladies. He says that belies them. She's a real live woman. She speaks. She breathes. She walks. She's alive. Thank you so much. That that reminded me of when you um, kept putting Sarah on the spot to sing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got back at me, didn't you? Yeah. Um, well, Phyllis, thank you so much for coming on Pen Daily. We really appreciate it. Thank you.